Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. There are four Sundays of Advent, and this is the first. And it's possible that you come from a spiritual background or a church tradition that did not really observe Advent. And so it's worth taking a moment to explain what we mean when we talk about Advent. Advent is a season that we love to celebrate here at Hope. And so it's good to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about uh, celebrating Advent. Um, Advent comes from the, the Latin root adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it is a season in which we sort of prepare to celebrate uh, Jesus's birth on Christmas morning, um, but at the risk of sounding a little bit like uh, Charlie Brown in his Christmas special, uh, the Advent season is done a little bit differently than the way our culture tends to celebrate and prepare for for Christmas morning. Uh, and part of that is because we recognize that we are actually living between the Advents. There is an Advent that came when, when Jesus was born on, on Christmas morning, uh, but we also recognize that Jesus has promised to reappear, to make all things new. And Advent is a season where we recognize we're kind of living in this already not yet. Uh, we're, li- we're living between the Advents, and, and so... Uh, even though our culture seems to be very focused on sort of the joy and the wonder of Christmas morning, uh, I would say that as, as, at Hope, we celebrate Advent in a way that is similar but different from the, from the culture around us. What is similar is that we also anticipate with joy and wonder Christmas morning um, in a way that's maybe different from the culture and that we, we center our joy and our wonder on the birth of Jesus rather than on the holiday itself, somehow providing enough uh, joy and wonder to, to satisfy our longings. Uh, but Advent is also this time of waiting. It's this time of anticipation. We look with honesty at the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own lives, and we have this longing, this waiting. We, we contemplate what is broken in the world And we become aware of our longings for God's final and ultimate restoration of all things. And so there's there's sobriety also in the Advent season that makes us distinct a little bit from from the culture around us. So so we live between the Advents, and and that's sort of a, a posture of how we approach the Advent season. To kick off our Advent series... We are focusing on a text from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. And this is a really significant verse in the New Testament. And there's one New Testament scholar who says that John 1, 14 is actually the central key verse of the entire Gospel of John. That the rest of the Gospel of John actually elaborates on what it means that the Word has become flesh. And so that's what we're going to ponder this, this morning. From John 1, 14. Um, but before we do that, let, let me pray. 
May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so let's read John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I was a, a boy growing up in Northwest Ohio, I had a, a neighbor who had a son who was three or four years older than me. And I can remember um, looking out in my backyard, there was a field behind my backyard where this neighbor, his name was Jeff, would bring his friends, who were all also about three or four years older than me, and they would have these football games in the backyard. Now, I loved to play football growing up, and I idolized a lot of these guys uh, from, our, from our community who would play football kind of right outside my, my back window. And so I got up enough courage one day to go out and to, to play with these guys, to try to play with these guys. And... You know, it, it went as you might imagine in some ways. These are uh, kids who are three or four years older than me. They see me coming out wanting to try to play. And, and, you know, there's a few kids from the neighborhood who are like, you know, go go away. Like, you're too small. You're too young. Uh, this, this game is not for you. But my neighbor Jeff saw me. And my, my neighbor Jeff knew who I was. And my neighbor Jeff believed in me. And he actually told the rest of the guys in the group, no, no, you should let Aaron, we're going to let Aaron play in this game. You'll see. And so they let me, they let me play in, in the football game and um, just, just gave me the chance to be with them and to play with them. And I still remember after the game, uh, Jeff coming over to me and actually encouraging me about how I had played in the game. He noticed me, he noticed how I played. He found things about how I played with these older guys. He, he encouraged me. And Jeff was the kind of neighbor for me. I didn't have an older brother growing up, but he was the kind of neighbor to me that was an older brother. He was the kind of neighbor that among all of these kids in my neighborhood, he was the kind of neighbor who I knew cared about me. And I knew he, he would stick up for me. Uh, Jeff was the kind of neighbor who brought a sense of security Instability. He instilled courage in me uh, to be with kids who were not as, as kind, not as friendly, not as gracious as, as he was. With me. He was a crucial neighbor in my, in my upbringing years. Uh, but I can also remember the day that I saw the moving vans out front of Jeff's house. And uh, I can remember just this feeling, even though he was just moving across town, I, I felt this sense of, of loss. What, what would this mean? What would this mean for my growing up years? Um, and, you know, I still wanted to hold out hope that there would be another family that would move in and might have a, a child who was similar to Jeff, but it turned out not to be as nice as the adults were that moved into the, that were my new neighbors. They didn't have any kids, and there was no one like Jeff to neighbor me like Jeff had. And so even today, in the neighborhood that we, that we live in, um, there, it's a pretty transient neighborhood. 
is not an uncommon sight to see a moving van on our street. And sometimes that can feel really sad because sometimes the people that are moving are people we've invested a lot of time and energy trying to get to know and to build a relationship with. It can feel like a loss of a connection. Uh, and I still hold out hope sometimes that the people moving in might be people that I can build this connection with and, and can, I can live life with in the same way that the neighbors were that had just moved out. But it's not, it's not always that way. And so I wonder what it's like for you this morning, if you think about it. What's it? What feelings go on inside of you when you see that moving truck, those moving vans on your street? What's that like for you? My hunch is that some of you might feel similarly, that maybe some of the folks moving out are people you build a relationship with, and so there's sadness and loss. Um, my hunch also is that some, for some of us, it might be that there's not a lot of conscious thoughts even that go through our minds when we see the moving bands. Maybe some of us are so used to seeing them that we're almost callous to new people moving into the neighborhood. Maybe we're so used to being feet away from neighbors and not even knowing their names that it hardly even registers on our radar that these moving bands come down the street and that new neighbors are moving in. And what John is doing in this text this morning is he is making the claim, he's making the argument that the God of the universe has moved in as our neighbor. What would it feel like if the God of the universe moved in next door? In some ways, that's what John is pondering with us this morning. And so if we're going to uh, think about what it means that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we would do well to remember what John is talking about when he's using this word, Word. Um, so we're going to actually go back to the beginning of John's prologue to the Gospel and just take a moment to try to bring clarity of what John is talking about when he's talking about the Word. So listen to John 1, verse 1. We'll just read the first four verses of the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing, there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the beginning of John's Gospel, we see that there is this figure called the Word. The Word is, is personified in this text. And John tells us that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so right at the beginning of John's Gospel, we see this mysterious Trinitarian language that John is, is beginning to use to describe what God is like. But we see that this word logos, word, was with God in the beginning, and, and the word is created. There's not anything that has been made that was not, not made in and through the word. 
And so John is making the claim from the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the Word and that the Word is divine, that the Word is God, that the Word is God. And so it is a remarkable shift in in the prologue of John's gospel when we get to verse 14, because John tells us that the Word has become flesh. That the creator God of the universe has become flesh and has dwelt among us. It is important to take a step back and think about this word dwelt. Because the word dwelt could also be translated as tabernacle. So another way to read this text is to hear John say, The word has become flesh and has tabernacled. Among us. Now, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that the tabernacle is an image that holds incredible significance for the people of God, for the people of Israel. We first find the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and in that story, if you recall, the people of God had been enslaved in Egypt for many, many years. And they were enslaved, they were abused, they were taken advantage of, they were suffering. But God heard their cry, and he raised up Moses, and he saved them from Egypt. And he brought them into the promised land. But he didn't just leave them there to fend for themselves. Because when you come out of slavery, when you come out of abuse, when you have come out of being used, when you've been in a situation where you've lost human dignity, you don't know what, it, what it's like to, to be a valuable and dignified human being because you've been a slave for your entire existence. That's disorienting to be free. Ancient Israel didn't know their up from their down, their right from their left. They were disoriented. They didn't know how to live in freedom. And of course, this is much of the reason that God gives them the law, but he doesn't just give them the law and give them rules and say, this is how you should live your life. But he's, he says, I will live with you. Listen to what God says in Exodus 25, verse 8. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And so, as Israel emerges from slavery into the promised land, they're disoriented. God says, yes, I'm present everywhere, but I want you to know, Israel, that I am present with you in a very special way. So that when you feel disoriented, when you feel lost, all you need to do is to look at the tabernacle and to know that the one who saved you from slavery in Egypt is the one who is dwelling and living in your midst right now. So it is okay. The message is, you are okay. I am with you. You have a place of security and stability because I am with you. Just look to the tabernacle. And so when John says that the word has become flesh and tabernacled among us, John is wanting us to hear the echoes of this story 
from the Old Testament. John is wanting us to understand that when the words become flesh and dwelt among us, it's much like this tabernacle in the wilderness. God has moved into our neighborhood. And in the midst of the darkness and brokenness, because of that, it's going to be okay. I want to share how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these first phrases of this verse. He says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. So please don't let your familiarity with John 1, 14 make this message go one in one ear and out the other this morning. Because what John is saying to us today is that, do you know that the creator God of the universe has moved next door? He's moved next door. He's moved into your neighborhood. That's a profound truth. So I think the next logical questions we ought to ask are things are questions that are not that dissimilar to what it's like when a regular a regular old person moves into our, our neighborhood. We wanna we wanna know things like what brought you here? What are you like? Well, John tells us a little bit about what this word in flesh is like. And it, it's important to begin with understanding that when Jesus moves into our neighborhood, Jesus comes with humility. He displays humility. And we, we see this with John's description that the word has become flesh. I, I actually want to read some comments by John Calvin as he kind of pondered what it means that the word has become flesh. He said, the word flesh expresses the meaning of the evangel- evangelist more forcibly than if he had said that he was made man. He intended to show to what a mean and despicable condition the Son of God, on our account, descended from the height of his heavenly glory. So what Calvin is saying here is that it means more than just Jesus came in human form, but the word flesh is significant here. Calvin goes on later to say that when you look at the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament uses the term flesh, Usually that highlights the weakness or the frailty of the human being. It parallels that with things like the flowers of the fields fading. So when Jesus becomes flesh, what, what John is doing is he's highlighting the distance of this dissension. This glorious creator God descended so much that he took on human flesh. He took on creation upon himself. He became like us. You know, I was thinking, what would it be like to have someone really prominent, really powerful, maybe really wealthy, move in next door into my neighborhood? Well, if that were to happen, I would expect that this person, let's say someone like Elon Musk, 
I would expect this person to look at my neighbor's house that they just bought and get crews to knock it down and to build a huge new plush mansion, probably with some high walls and a gate, and, and probably this would represent so much of this, this noble person's uh, power and prestige and place and, and the distance they would want to create between, between me and them. But what John is getting at here is that's not how God comes to us. He comes in flesh. When, he, when God moves into the neighborhood, it's as though he looks at that, our neighbor's house and says, I like it the way it is. I like it the way it is. I'm not going to do anything to it because I want to live like you live. I want to live in this neighborhood with you. I want to be with you and live like you live. That's so much of the, the feeling of what it means that Jesus has become flesh, that God has become flesh. And what it highlights is the humility of God in Jesus. I think something else we see about the word become flesh is we see that uh, he is still glorious. We might think that the glorious creator God, if he becomes human, that his glory is now hidden. That we are unable to see his glory. But John says, no. When, the, when, when God becomes flesh, we actually see God's glory displayed in Jesus. And what is he like? John says that the word is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, when I think of grace and truth... Uh, I might have a tendency to see grace and truth almost as sort of opposites that Jesus brings together. You know, it's easy to think of grace as sort of uh, the soft side of Jesus, and truth as the kind of harder, more firm, perhaps even more harsh side of Jesus, but that Jesus brings those things together and is full of grace and truth. Now, it is true that in the Gospels we see a Jesus who welcomes children willingly to himself. There is a very tender Jesus in the Gospels. And yes, we do see a Jesus that comes into the temple and flips over tables and, and confronts the religious leaders of his day. But when John is talking about the word being filled with grace and truth, I don't really think what I've just described is what he's going after. Because the word truth has a relational meaning also. So imagine that you're at a funeral and uh, there is a, a person in the casket and there's someone eulogizing and during the eulogy, the person says, this, this person was true to his wife and to his family. How would you hear that? Well, what I would hear if I heard that is that this person was full of integrity. That this person was not living a duplicitous life. That this person did not have dark secrets. That this person was loyal and faithful to his wife and to his family. And so when John says 
that the word is full of grace and truth, what he's getting at is that the way that the, the word Jesus is glorious, the way he displays his glory is that he is gracious, he is generous, and he is true. He is faithful, he is loyal, he has integrity. That's how we see God's glory displayed through the word incarnate. So, the incarnation can say uh, many things to us. God in flesh, could we could spend many, many hours reflecting and thinking about what that means to us. But what I hope you hear this morning is that uh, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, in our dark, in our, in our sad world, when we feel unstable, when we feel insecure, when we feel disoriented, God has come and moved into our neighborhood. He's come and moved into our neighborhood, and He displays God's glory by displaying humility, by displaying God's grace, God's generosity towards us, and His loyalty. Jesus is the one who is true to us. So, what does this mean for us going forward? Well, as a church, we have been reading this book called The Art of Neighboring. And the reason we've been reading this book in our, in our home groups and having discussions about the content of this book is because we value something that we're calling redemptive hospitality. We want to be the kind of people that display what Jesus' hospitality looks like. Of course, this side of heaven, we cannot do that imperfectly, but we want to grow, we want to seek to be the kind of people that reflect God's hospitality to the people around us, including our neighbors. And so that's why we've been, we've been talking about this book called The Art of Neighboring. And the reason I, I think this passage is so significant for us is not just because it's related to the Advent season, but because this, this text really is the foundation for our neighboring. We are able to neighbor well because God has been a good neighbor to us. We are able to neighbor well because God promises to us that in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, that our eternal destiny is to be God's neighbor. Part of the picture of the new heavens and the new earth is that God has promised that we will be His neighbor in the city, in the new city of Jerusalem forever. And so the incarnation in some ways is just sort of a deposit. It's this promise displaying a glimpse of what our eternal destiny will be for those of us who are united to Jesus in faith. And so because we have this security and this stability, we can reflect what God is like to our neighbors. We can do our best to receive the humility of Jesus and look for ways to serve our neighbors. Because God has been gracious and generous with us, we can look for ways to give with our neighbors. Because God has been true and loyal and faithful to us, we can be true to our neighbors who, quite honestly, can sometimes be a little annoying. Um, 
perhaps there are days it feels like they care more about the quality of their own grass than they care about our well-being. But even in the midst of the messiness of living life with neighbors, we can neighbor well because God has neighbored us well and because God promises that we will be his neighbor for eternity. So let me take a moment and pray and we'll close this morning. God, we thank you this morning for the first advent. We thank you for coming to us and entering into our dark and sad world as a human being. Thank you, Lord, for moving into our neighborhood. We thank you for displaying your character to us, that you humbled yourself to serve us. We thank you that you displayed your glory to us by showing your gracious generosity and your fierce loyalty to people who are disloyal to you. Lord, would you grow us by your Holy Spirit living inside of us to be the kind of people that reflect your character to our neighbors? Would you help us to neighbor our neighbors the way that you have neighbored us? Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.